you're wanting to know who the old guy is. Um, my name's Randy Garris. I'm a native of Southwest Missouri. I've come a long, life, a long way in life, about 30 miles. Uh, grew up at Lamar. I, I preached most of my life at, uh, in Joplin. About 40 years um, being preacher, 33 years of it with, with a College Heights Christian Church uh, in Joplin. And then the last six years, my wife and I are on staff at Ozark Christian College. Uh, honestly feel like that, that if you've been a few years in ministry, one of the responsibilities you have is to circle back where young leaders are just starting out. And it's not that we're smarter or better, those sort of things, but you just share the journey. We sort of meet these young leaders at about age 20, about, I mean, about mile marker number 24 and kind of walk to mile marker number 27. And that's what we're doing, is just mentoring and discipling. As far as this congregation, um, your backstory and my backstory kind of overlap a little bit. 46 years ago here on Reardon Way or Reardon Row or Reardon Alley or Reardon something, um, I proposed to Miss Julie. I got down on both knees and proposed to her. It really wasn't that, that romantic and snapshot opportunity. She had the couch all hogged and I was on the floor, so I had to turn around and get on my knees to propose. But uh, Julie was helping to lead worship in the first year of uh, your congregation here. She worked at the Reardon Center and she helped uh, this congregation. I was farming up there and came down and, and found my wife in Arkansas. Um, we did shop for our rings here. Um, she forever thinks of Arkansas when she looks at a ring. She thinks of Little Rock and has nothing to do with the town. Not a single thing to do with the town. We're going to start because it's Father's Day weekend. We're going to, I'm going to do a little two-week series. I'm with you um, this Sunday and next Sunday. We're going to do a little two-week series entitled Home and Family, Making Love Work at Your Address. And I know that about, when I say that, about 60% of any room will cringe and go, oh no, a marriage series or a children's series. And, and it's, it's going to include that, but no, it's much broader. This is not just about marriage or children. It's about family. Everybody's born in a family. Everybody will die in a family. If you're 13, you're in a family. If you're 93, you're in a family. Family is one of the most basic building blocks of life. It's part of our basic DNA. And I don't know what your experience is, but here's the truth. We have a little trouble making family work. And so we're going to spend some time on that. I don't know what your experience with family is. I'm going to throw out some words here. And some, some of these words will be yours and some will not. For some of you, the concept of family is wonderful and terrific and has laughter and joy and fun and safety. And you think about family and you just have a sense of delight. Uh, everybody needs to add these two words. I don't care what family you have. I don't care how great your family is. The word quirky needs to go in and the word odd needs to go in because every family is. You hang out with any family and you go, this is a quirky family. Well, welcome to family. That's by its very definition. It's going to be quirky. That's, that's how we are. But others of you, the words would be painful and broken and tearful and angry and sad discouraged, confused. We have a lot of trouble making family work. These are anecdotal, but they're kind of the story of my life. They just are. I think when you, when you get into ministry, you realize sin always follows people home. 
and you work with families. College students would meet with me the last few weeks of this last semester in May, and they would come in and sit down either at my office or come to my workshop or at the house and sit down and, and say, I don't want to go home. I don't get along with mom or I don't get along with my stepmom, and I, I dread the summer. I was hoping to have this internship that had me, but I'm going to go home, and I, I, I don't want to go home. How do you, and we would start a conversation. All of ministry has had some level of that. Everybody here, when I talk about family, maybe it's estranged from your parents. Maybe it's estranged from a sibling. For some of you, it is marriage. For some of you, you're high school kids, and you're not sure what to do in your own home and your own family. This is, again, I've used the word anecdotal a couple of times already, but I was 22 years old when I started my first full-time ministry. And I'm unloading the truck. And as we unload the truck, just putting furniture in a house, there's a knock on the door, a guy in uniform. And he says, how do you do? I'm a deacon in your congregation. You have, I haven't had a chance to meet you. I've been gone with maneuvers. And can we talk? And we walked around behind the house. And he just held his head and began to weep. And he said, my wife told me last night she doesn't love me. And in and, 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 and this story, he said, could you talk to her? My very first appointment and full-time ministry was an empty office building with three metal folding chairs, nothing else, and a woman who's going, you're right, it was a mistake to marry you. I should not have, and I don't want to be married to you. I spent 33 years at College Heights. I was surrounded on two sides by Missouri Southern State University, so I was with college kids and their families. I was with a congregation of a couple thousand, and so you had young families and old families. My very first phone call at College Heights, I'm moving my books into my office and the phone rings and I don't even know which button to push on this phone. It had more buttons than anything I'd have been around before. And I finally find a button and I pick it up and there's a woman who begins to shout in my phone, in, in the ear. I want you to know what kind of terrible people you have in your church. My daughter is in your church and she and her, and, and her husband are horrible people. And, and, and I'm listening to a woman scream about her daughter. My first call was that night, and I went to a family's home, and that woman was so wrong. Her daughter was one of the sweetest, finest, I, the, the dear friends to this day, incredible people. Here's what I know is family is hard to make work in our culture. There are emotions in this room that if I push hard enough, handkerchiefs and Kleenexes come out. But I want to give you good news. The good news is there are generational changes. That the redemption in Christ that redeems your life and reconciles you to him is also the redemption that occurs so that you, you may not make everybody else behave and do what they ought to. You don't have control of other people. But you get to drive a stake in the ground and say from this point forward, we as a family are different. The family that I get to have impact on. Generational change. I, my grandfather dumped three kids off when his wife died in childbirth and disappeared for 10 years and lived out of a bottle. Went back 10 years later and picked up three pretty angry children, as you may well guess. He ended up marrying another woman, the sister of his late wife. My dad's part of that crew. I can tell you what my grandfather's legacy was. But my dad, my dad didn't become a serious Christ follower until I'm married and have kids. But I can tell you what happened when my dad decided to make a change, and I watched it with my own eyes. 
can the leopard change his spots? The animal channel probably says no. The scripture says yes. My father's 92. My mom's 89. I, 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 I can tell you of a change. I can tell you in my own life. What has been does not have to be what always will be. You cannot change everybody around you. But it is your responsibility to be a Christ follower in such a manner, in such a way that God would nudge the angels and say, watch this. They love well. Their family is blessed by how they love. And so this morning in the broadest sense, high school kids, junior high, singles, let's talk about family. How do you live the redemptive story of love at your address with family? There are two big rocks. I'm going to cover the first big rock. Uh, I'm going to put it out here and talk about it this morning. We'll walk around and, and consider it. It's this morning. I'm who you have next week as your preacher as well, unless the elders have an emergency meeting between now and then. And we'll take the second big rock. Uh, here's the first one. It starts on this simple question. Why doesn't love work? You would think it's the most instinctive thing on the face of the earth. It just ought to naturally happen. Well, here's the reality. Everybody is born with the instinctive desire to love and be loved. Be you saint or be you scoundrel. You're born with that. Deepest, darkest prison, greatest monastery. They have the same thing. Everybody has the instinctive desire to love and be loved. Instinctive in the sense that um, a whale is, has an instinct to migrate across the ocean. I was raised on a cow-calf operation in southwest Missouri. I, I'm still fascinated when a calf hits the ground and is born. That calf some, seems to know to stand up on four little sticks that we call legs. It's never stood before, but it seems to know intuitively to get up on those legs. That calf immediately, instinctively, begins to take its forehead and begin to bump on that cow and it's looking for something it's never seen and no one's described to it before it's looking for an udder and it's going to try to find milk because it is instinctive God put it in that to find where that milk is so that life will come you were born with the instinctive desire to love and be loved here's the problem while the desire is instinctive the ability to love is not Instinctive. The ability to love depends upon wholeness and character. The ability to love is dependent upon wholeness and character. The easiest way you can verbalize this and visualize it is this. You reach into your heart for the desire to love, and everybody does that, but you reach into your backbone for the ability to love. And if your backbone does not have wholeness and character, then here's the problem. Love makes claims on you that you cannot do without an adequate character and wholeness. If Christ has not done enough repair on you, you will reach into your backbone and come out more empty-handed. And so you have this massive frustration. On the one hand, I want to love and be loved. On the other hand, it just keeps failing because the inadequacies of wholeness and character. The redemptive story of Christ in your life is you have to be repaired enough that you can love, not just want to love. Love makes claims on your life, claims that you have to be kind when you didn't want to be kind, when you forgive when you didn't want to be for, forgiving, when you have to have the courage to speak up when you would rather duck and avoid something. 
It makes the claims that you don't have to have the last word on situation. Love makes claims on you in such a way that I can keep silent when I didn't want to keep silent. Love begins to call for a set of actions and a call for a set of behavior that imitates Christ and lives out the character of God. But if I don't have that wholeness, then what I live out is my weakness, and my weakness will never be love. I don't know whose story I'm getting into, but I'm getting into somebody's in this one. Your dad wanted to love you. Your dad didn't look at you as a sixth grade boy or a fourth grade girl and go, you're so unloving, I don't want to be in your life, and I don't want to be in your mom's life, and I'm going to walk out of... Your, your, your dad never looked at you and go, you're so nothing, I don't want... I would much rather be at work and immersed in work than I would be in your life. Your dad wanted to love you. I can guarantee you that. I've lived with families for all of these years over and over and over and over again. I know your dad wanted to love you. Your dad, I can almost guarantee you, there's stains on his pillow where he cried nights. So frustrated, I don't know what to do, how to make this work. I guarantee you there's almost dents in the steering wheel of that F-150 when your dad got in the truck to go to work and he pounded the steering wheel out of frustration and said some Bible words in non-Bible context. Your dad wanted to love you. The problem was not that your dad didn't want to. The problem was when your dad reached into his backbone for the, the things that love requires, he kept coming out empty-handed. He didn't have enough wholeness and enough character to live out what he wanted to love. And at first he blamed himself because that's, that is the truth. But nobody does that very long without either real repentance or switch to blame. So now it became your problem. Now if you just walk across the floor better, if you would just smile more, if you would just talk more, if you would just talk less, if you were just less irritating, if your mom was just this, if it was just that, if it, weren't, if it just weren't for work, if it just weren't for, and you can fill the blank in. The truth is love requires wholeness. Some of you right now are in situations you're blaming everything external. You're blaming your kid's behavior. You're blaming the stress of the work. You're blaming the person you married. You're blaming the personality of a sibling. When the reality is everybody that we will ever love is a stumbler. James chapter 3, we all stumble in many ways. Nobody Nobody has any family members that are not stumblers. The question is, do I have enough wholeness to love wisely and love well? Have I let Christ repair me enough to love? Or am I reaching into my backbone and coming out empty-handed and I have flipped it to blame? If you just were, fill the blank in. One of the most profound passages I know, and it doesn't look like it on the surface, is Proverbs 25, 28. Proverbs 25, 28 fits a, a pattern within the book of Proverbs, and I'll work my way backwards with it. And I don't know if I'll even say it to you how it's on the screen. I've got it memorized in a couple, three different versions, and sometimes I mix them together. And so if you ask me what version, my answer is yes, because I don't know. Uh, here's how it goes. 
that a man without discipline, a man without self-discipline, a man without wholeness, it uses a word very similar to the word wisdom in Scripture. But a man without self-discipline or a man without wholeness is like a city without walls. What in the world does that mean? I'm really glad you asked because I have about five more minutes I want to talk about this. I want you to picture two cities. One city with walls and one city without walls. In both cities, the city with walls and the city without walls, they want the same thing. In both cities, parents tuck their kids in at bed at night and kiss them on the forehead and sing to them. In both cities, they play t-ball in the backyard. In both cities, old men and young, oh, old men and, and young men sit and tell stories. In both cities, old women and old men hold hands and walk. In both cities, they take the summer wheat and they put it aside in the bins so they can plant it next spring. They're very similar. Here's the problem. But come spring, the city without walls doesn't have any of those. The kids have been carried off by raiders. The old men and women were killed in their bed. The city without walls had no protection. The city without walls, it all fell apart. It was dreams you couldn't come to fruition. And the city without wa with walls is protected. And this has nothing to do with cities. Truth is, the most dangerous man or woman on the face of the earth is not the scoundrel. The person who's a snake and a scoundrel, you don't let very close into your life. You figure that out and you back off pretty quickly. And there are a few of those people. Truth is, there's not many scoundrels. They're just lots of men and women without walls. The most dangerous person on the face of the earth is the likable, charismatic, funny individual, fun to be around, storytelling, love to play football with, love to date in high school, love, love, love having in the office. They're so talented in this way and this way, and they're just so great except for this one little weakness. They don't have wholeness, and anybody who steps in their life is going to find that you live in a city without walls. And so she will stand here on this site. And she will promise to love this man the rest of her life. But the truth is she doesn't have walls in her life. And he goes home and he finds out the things she promises and vows she can't protect. And he promises things. If I had a whole conversation with singles and high school kids and all of that, I would, I would have a conversation to say, do you understand, don't you? The book of Proverbs says to you over and over again, run from a foolish man, run from a foolish woman. Why? Because they're wicked and evil and awful? No, they, they could be, but no. No, not at all. Julie and I have 10 grandchildren, the 11th one on the way. I got a junior in high school and a sophomore and two freshmen and a seventh grader and a fourth grader and a first grader and a four-year-old and a two-year-old and a one-year-old and... I, 12 more, I think. <laughs> I love those kids. And I'm not trying to be offensive. Please hear me. I'm not trying to be offensive, but they are fools. Does it mean they're bad kids? No, they're exactly what they're supposed to be. They just, the concept of a fool 
primarily in, in, in the book of Proverbs is they haven't come to wholeness. They're not supposed to yet. But the ability to love requires wholeness. And if you don't have it, you'll get really good at blame. You'll get really good at avoidance. You'll get really good at a shell game. There's a reason we don't let nine-year-olds get married. Because no matter how talented a nine-year-old is, he's got a journey he hasn't finished yet. The concept that I think has to be said to everybody here is there's a sacred journey you have to take with God if you're ever going to be a great lover. Come on, Frodo, we've got a journey to take. And that journey is a journey of wholeness. For some of you in here that may be single, I don't care how good somebody is in your life, you probably ought to say in some of your cases, I have unfinished business in my life and I would love to have a relationship with you in the future, but the truth is I'm at a place in my life, I don't know there's been enough repair yet, enough wholeness for me to love. I need Christ to repair me. Julie and I work with tons of college kids. We sort of joke we could subtitle our ministry, Breakups Are Us. And in some cases, that's exactly what should happen. Not because they're bad people, but they are, have unfinished business. For others of you in this room, you would say, wow, man, kind of getting in my kitchen, but I've already got kids. I've already got a husband or a wife. Can I tell you one of the most godly things I know? And one of the most honest things I know is for a man to sit down with his wife, maybe in the parking lot before you leave, and say, sweetheart, I am so sorry that you have lived with an angry man. I know you have to walk on eggs around me on a regular basis. I know when I come home from work, I know from the highway, I know from when something goes wrong, you have lived with an angry man. And I have, I've either said it out loud or I've implied that it's everybody else's fault. Truth is, Christ has not repaired me enough and I've not let Christ repair me hun I owe you an apology and here's what I'm going to ask instead of praying about mashed potatoes and Aunt Martha's hip let's start praying about something we need would you pray for growth and transformation in my own life I want to grow up I want to be discipled by Jesus so that I can love our kids well. I want to be discipled by Jesus so I can love my sibling well. I want to be discipled by Jesus. There are women in this room you ought to sit down with your kids and you ought to say, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. Your childishness is normal for kids. Kids, you're supposed to be professional mistake makers. Every kid has the similar weaknesses. Somewhere in Russia, some kid's back talking to mom. Somewhere in Iran, some kids spilling milk at a table, somewhere in the Sudan, somebody, some kids being irresponsible, somewhere, some kid is being rebellious, somewhere, somewhere in South America, some mother's going, why do you never listen to me? I mean, that, that, that's normal. And moms who lose it in ways they shouldn't lose it 
They begin to say, you pushed me over the edge. You just took me too far. You just, no, they didn't. They're supposed to be mistake makers. And yes, you're supposed to give discipline. But it's supposed to come out of somebody who has the backbone to live the courage of love and the kindness of love and the firmness of love and the consistency of love. There's a place where mamas sit down and say, sweetheart, I want you to pray with me as well. I tuck you in at bed at night and pray with you. But I promise you, I'm taking a journey that Christ will bring more healing in my life. There are high school boys that ought to walk in and sit down with a mom and go, Mom, my emotions are all over the place and you know that and I'm still figuring out how to use them. But Mom, you pay way too high a price because my, I come at you and, and I mishandle Mom. And Mom, would you pray with me? Because I want to learn to grow up. You want to know how to make a godly family? It doesn't have much to do with changing the external circumstances. It has almost entirely to do with Christ. Would you heal me? I want to come to enough wholeness to love. So what would wholeness actually look like? By the way, I've got another good two hours on this. I don't know what you guys are doing for lunch today. <laughs> Those of you who have heard me speak before, I'm not really very good, but I always try to go long to make up for it. <laughs> wholeness, if you want to know what wholeness looks like, read the book of Proverbs about 15 to 20 times in a row. But not just the book of Proverbs. Whenever it talks about wisdom, it's talking about wholeness. But I would also tell you, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John until the pages fall apart. Why? Because when you hang out with Jesus, you begin to understand what his repair and wholeness looks like. And so Proverbs and Christ, I would just read over and over again to your eyesight changed on what wholeness looks like. Well, how do you get there? In the short time we have, I'm going to tell you two things that will be a part of it. Both of these you, we, we ought to just go deep on, but we, this just isn't the time. Here's the first one. People will be involved in your wholeness. I don't know why in the sovereignty of God he designed us for community like we did, but people will be involved. You will not get well without people. And one of the most important things you'll do is you'll call John up and say, John, I know you sort of. John, I've always respected you and admired you. John, I've been around your life and your family. John, I want, I want to confess something. My wife lives with an angry man. And John, I want to know how you do what you do. And John, I'd like somebody to walk with me for a bit of a journey. You don't have to be a guru who knows all the answers, but, but John, I need a prayer partner. And John, could we have a cup of coffee and can we talk about this? And when you begin to confess with men, when you begin to have conversations, when women begin to gather, when you begin to be with one another and you begin to open your chest and you begin to say, this is what we have. I said it a minute ago. We pray about mashed potatoes at Aunt Martha's hip. When the kingdom calls me to pray about things that are deeper and my ability to be like Christ and to love like Christ, that's what we ought to be praying about. And so people who have conversation, my own life, I am so grateful to guys like Gary Riker and guys like Steve and guys like Roger. And I go through a list of guys my, my own transformation, whatever that was, Julie didn't marry a bad man. I know that. 
And we've had a sweet marriage from day one. But she was married married to a mannequin than she should have been. A little more of a plastic guy. I thought I had three or four emotions and took him out once a year to look at him just to see if I had him. And somewhere becoming a real guy. I grew up where John Wayne was sort of who you were supposed to be. I, don't, I hate drama. Truth was, all of that, though, was my own incompleteness. I didn't know how to love well. And Julie was patient. And she modeled it. And again, we've had a great marriage from day one. It's just that I, I wish she could have had it better sooner. It was people. You live in a culture that, 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 that pushes back against that kind of transparency with each other. C.S. Lewis said anyone who would speak of, of friendship begins a rehabilitation journey. Well, what kind of friendship? You realize, don't you, that there's a price to be paid in any culture you're in? Any culture has a drawback to that culture. The price that's paid for living in a third world culture is you bury babies. It's nobody's fault. It's just a reality. Infant mortality is so high, you bury the baby across the street. They bury that house had a baby. This one had a baby. Everybody loses babies. It's the price you pay in a third world culture. So what's the price you pay in a first world culture? You limp at arm's length from most people and call it friendship. People from third world culture will come and live here and eight to ten months after living here, they'll be in my office or I'll be at their home and they'll be weeping and say, why will no one be our friends? And you say, well, wait a second. Everybody loves you. And they will say, yes, everybody's friendly, but we don't have friends. Why? Because they came from a background where they understood you share life together in that third world culture they came from. But we don't share life together very well. This is not a new thing. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who was killed by the Nazis at the end of World War II, Diedrich Bonhoeffer said about the Christian community, he said, we teach one another, we teach you in the Christian community how to stand in front of somebody and lead. We even teach you how to kneel in front of somebody and serve, but we don't teach you well how to stand beside somebody and befriend, and we are unrepaired, and there's no one to tell us. When you get well, it will be because there's a story of some other people in your life that you brought in. C.S. Lewis died the same day that John F. Kennedy was shot. But C.S. Lewis, when he, when he died, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote, as you know, Lord of the Rings and those things, J.R. Tolkien said about C.S. Lewis, he said, there was a group of us that we called the Inklings. We met together regularly. We met together weekly. And then he makes this statement, and we healed one another. You don't attend a church. You intertwine your life with people in the church. Repair comes from that. Here's the second. The second is it will involve a deeper, different kind of worship and an accompanied life, a partnered life, an accompanied life. Your worship will have to change. Your friendships will have to help coach you to wholeness, and your worship will have to take you to wholeness. It's interesting in Scripture that you have these commands to love. They're everywhere. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5. If you've been to any wedding, I guarantee you, you can almost mouth the words to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, starting 
down in what? I'm guessing verse 23, some 24, 25, somewhere in those verses. It begins to talk about husbands, love your wives, and, and it has, as Christ loved the church. And, and so you have the, the command to love in Ephesians 5. You realize, don't you, that you never have the command to love in Scripture that doesn't have a precursor to it. Because the command to love cannot come out of the brokenness of the sin we all have. It has to come out of the divinity that Christ is working on in us. And so the command to love in Ephesians chapter 5 is preceded by four and a half chapters, but in particular it's preceded with verses like Ephesians chapter 5, verses 16, 17, and 18. Don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. You have wisdom. Have wholeness. Have wisdom. Don't be a fool. And then he puts this phrase. You'll have to be under, you'll need to be under the influence of the Spirit. I don't want you to be under the influence of wine. I want you to be under the influence of the Spirit. What's that all passage about? You have to be under the influence of an accompanied life being led by the Spirit of God in order for you to live out the vows you're going to make. Otherwise, you're just nine-year-old kids standing your mouth and words you can't keep. You're carrying babies out of a hospital, but you're saying things over them you can't keep if you do not walk with the Holy Spirit. If you're not under the influence, you're going to have great trouble with it. That's everywhere. Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit. You want the fruit of the Spirit, verses 22 and 23. You want your home to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You want that, and you say, wow, God, where do I buy that? How do I get that? Where do I exchange that? How much money does it take to get that? He says, well, actually, here's how you get it. It's, it's obvious. You want the fruit of the Spirit? Look at verse 16. You walk with the Spirit. Verse 18, you be led by the Spirit. Verse 25, you live in the Spirit. Verse 25, you keep in step with the Spirit. Chapter 6, verse 1, you live in the Spirit. Chapter 6, verse 8, you sow to please the Spirit. Here's the reality. The Christian life is not a moral lifestyle that I just decide to choose and put on. It's actually an accompanied life. It's getting up in the morning and saying, Christ, I walk with you today in, the, in, in your spirit you put in me. I want to be walk with the spirit, led by the spirit, keep in step with the spirit. and all. I'm part, it, It's a worship. And if you walk with the spirit, this accompanied life, there's a worship that occurs. And lo and behold, you'll find out that you're capable of what you were incapable of before. The transformation. I need to quit. I've heard it twice or three times where people have used separately this same exact phrase. One of them is a wife standing in front of the congregation and her husband's standing beside her, and she said, my, my husband's had a brain transplant. And she smiled and laughed, and he was smiling and laughing, and they were both wiping tears. He'd been with a group of men, and she said, I don't know what all happened, but she said, my husband has a different brain. And she said, it's wonderful. Because I've been in the same town a long time, I, I had their boy in college 
in a class of mine last year. I told him that story of when his parents, before he was ever born, and he began to wipe tears, and he said, I can't imagine a better man than my dad. He said, I didn't know except the dad said that he had to grow up once he got married, and, 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 he, be, and, he, and he began to say, I want to be like my dad. He said, that man is an incredible man, and he's wiping tears. That brain transplant is nothing more than wholeness that a man shows in the middle of a situation. It occurred out of worship, and it occurred out of community. How long are the people in your family going to have to live with you being unrepaired? I'm getting a little personal here with, with even Joe's family. Sonia, Joe, who normally preaches here, Sonia is his sister. Sonia tells the story, and she said, our family had a hard blow, and it was a thing that scared her as a little girl. She's just a little girl. And she said, I'm scared. I don't know what's going to happen to our family. It's a hard thing. But she describes entering the room and her dad, Dick, on his knees with an open Bible. And she said, he's just on his knees in this Bible morning after morning after morning, him asking, God, will you lead me? God, will you change me? God, will you fill me? God, will you do what you need to do? And she describes, I knew everything was going to be okay, and she said it turned out to be. And great things happened in that family because she said, I know where Dad started every morning. That's what Dad was doing. People and worship. Love requires wholeness, and wholeness comes by repair. I wish that for you. We'll pick up the second big rock next Sunday. Heavenly Father, I would ask that in the lives of your people, would there be joy and delight and laughter? Father, would there be a sense of repentance, a sense of my family shouldn't have to live with this? Would there be a sense of hope that you're the God who repairs and restores? Lord, I pray that your families within the community of the kingdom of God will look like the community of God. In Christ's name, amen.